are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 is where we're going to spend our time together uh, this morning. If you are new with us, let me just take a moment and tell you how grateful I am uh, that you have joined with us to worship uh, the King of Kings this morning. Uh, We are going to be in Ruth chapter 4, wrapping up a series on uh, the book of Ruth. And this is Palm Sunday. uh, And... uh, I can't think of any better passage, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, to be uh, than here uh, in Ruth chapter 4 for a Sunday like this. Uh, Now, as we look here at the book of Ruth, one of the questions that has uh, come into my mind several times is if uh, Hollywood were to make a movie about the book of Ruth, what would it look like? Uh, And then my mind goes to, well, if, uh, if Hollywood were to make a movie about my life, what would it look like? And maybe more importantly, who would play me? Um, and uh, so if you ask my wife, she says it's a mix between a young John Wayne and a Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> s- some of you, some of you are saying, oh, you're more of a Danny DeVito guy, right? Um, uh, but uh, may- maybe you've, you've thought that question yourself, right? If, uh, if Hollywood were to make a movie about your life, who would play you? What would it be? Uh, all of those things. Um, and what we know about Hollywood, right? They're, they're not always great at getting the Bible right, um, but... This story here in the book of Ruth, uh, it is full of everything that makes a great story, right? It's full of everything that would seemingly make a great movie. And then we get to chapter four and this love story that has been a little different, uh, this love story that has read a a little strangely almost for love stories, uh, it has... potentially maybe uh, the most anticlimactic uh, ending in any love story that maybe you uh, have ever read. Uh, So as we look here at Ruth chapter four, what we see and what we've seen in the entire book of Ruth is that this this story is really about so much more uh, than just Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. This story is really about Jesus and Jesus who has come to redeem his people. And so it's fitting that we would end Ruth chapter four by seeing this truth that nothing can stop God's plan to redeem. Nothing can stop God's plan to redeem. So look with me here at Ruth chapter four. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. Here in Ruth chapter four, starting in verse one, we read this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need your grace this morning. Father, we, we need you to speak to us through your word. God, we want to hear from you. And so, Father, we pray that you would do just that, that you would speak to us now. And Father, this morning as we gather here to worship together, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters as well, gathering there at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville for the first time since tragedy has struck their church and their community. Father, we pray uh, that you would be near to them even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Nothing can stop God's plan to redeem. As we think about this, as we look at this here in Ruth chapter 4, we're going to see some important points about redemption. The first is this, is the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption. You know, redemption is never an accident. God didn't just fall into this plan of redemption. Redemption is always a plan, and the Lord has always had a plan. It's true here for Ruth and Naomi, and it's true for you and I as well, that God has a plan, and nothing can stop that plan to redeem. Now, Ruth is a love story. It might not always feel like a love story, but it is a love story nonetheless. It begins with tragedy. Right, it begins with famine and with death. It begins with a heartache and brokenness and all of these things that lead us to believe that things can only get better from where they are. So it begins with tragedy and then it moves to hopefulness as Naomi and Ruth, as they come back, as Naomi comes back from Moab with this Moabite daughter-in-law and she comes to Bethlehem because she's heard that the Lord has provided food for his people and she comes back and she's welcomed and greeted and celebrated as the daughter who left has now come home. And this hopefulness intensifies as they meet Boaz and Naomi realizes that Boaz is a relative. He is a redeemer, one who can save them from their distress. And so then in chapter three, we see this unconventional proposal where Ruth goes and she uncovers Boaz's feet and she lays at his feet and she says, spread your wings over me so that I might be your wife. And just when it feels like things are finally starting to work out, things are finally starting to get good, Boaz says, Ruth, I would love to marry you, but there's one problem. There's another redeemer. Right, there's a, a nearer redeemer, there's a nearer kinsman, and it's his right first to marry you. And so let me go and see what he says. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in Ruth chapter four, where Boaz is going to find this redeemer who has the first right of refusal to Naomi's land and then also to marrying Naomi's daughter-in-law here in Ruth chapter four. So look at verse one. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Now he says that Boaz went to the gate. 
Uh, the gate was the most popular place in town. It was uh, kind of like a town hall and a courtyard and a courthouse all in one. Uh, people were constantly going in and out of the gate. So if you wanted to find someone, if you were looking for someone, uh, you would go to the gate and you would wait. And now we see a, a hint of sarcasm here. In verse one, he says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the Redeemer has showed up. Right Over and over again through the book of Ruth, what do we see? We see it's almost as if happenstance that things work out for Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And here it's like the author is telling us, hey, the Lord has done it again, right? That Boaz has gone to the gate and what do you know? Right? He happens to find the Redeemer. He, he happens to find this kinsman that he had been looking for, that he had been waiting for. See, Boaz knew what he was doing, but the Lord was working it out. Right, see, God was sovereign, God is sovereign, and yet Boaz, uh, he was responsible. And so in verse two, he gathers the elders and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now in this verse, what we see is we see Boaz's authority in the community, right? That he goes to the 10 elders and he tells them to sit down here and the elders don't question him. The elders don't ask, well, who are you or why should we do this? No, Boaz said, sit down here. And they said, yes, sir, right? They, they said, yes, Boaz, whatever you want. And he says to the redeemer, right? Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now he brings this potential redeemer up to speed. And I want you to think back, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, I want you to think about the names that we have encountered, right? Every name has some kind of significance. Elimelech means my God is king. The two sons that died, their names were sick and weak. Naomi, her name means pleasant and lovely. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And so it's significant here that this potential redeemer that he's never named. We don't have a name for who this man is. Now, it could be that the author's trying to protect his reputation. It could be that because he failed to be the redeemer that he was supposed to be, that he's not worth remembering in history. But it's significant that he's never named. Yet he knows who Naomi is. He says that Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Verse four, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it, but if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now it's very likely that this redeemer knew that Naomi had come back. At this point, Naomi has been back for weeks, maybe even months. If you remember, when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, it wasn't just that she had come in for a moment. No, there was fanfare, right? There was celebration. The entire city knew that Naomi had returned. And so this potential redeemer, he knew that Naomi had come back, which meant that he also knew that it was his responsibility to redeem Naomi. Now, this is an easy decision for him. Right? He, he agrees to buy the land because ultimately this probably would not have cost him much. And also it would have gained him some standing in the community. He would have gained some credibility. But then even more than that, he's gaining profit potential. 
He can purchase this land for not very much, and then he can sell, or he can use this land, he can work this land to sell the harvest, so he's essentially doubling his profit potential. This is an easy decision. Verse 5 tells us that his responsibility, it says, Then Boaz said, the, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, Notice this, this is why. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So he says that you buy this land, that's great, but understand that there's fine print. If you buy the land, you don't just get the land, but you also get Ruth. In other words, you don't just get the land, but you also get another wife. And any child or the first child that you conceive with that wife won't actually be your heir, but he'll be Ruth's late husband's heir to perpetuate his name. And so what this means is that whenever you die, it's not your children and your wife that get the land, but it will be this, this new child. He will be the one to get the land. And so the redeemer changes his mind. Look in verse six. The redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself for I cannot redeem it. He says no because it's going to affect his family's inheritance and ultimately it's going to cost him more than he's willing to pay. See, get this, this redeemer, he's only willing to care for the poor. He's only willing to care for the needy. He's only willing to care for the distressed if there's something in it for him. If the payoff is worth it. In other words, he wants the benefits of being a redeemer without the cost of being a redeemer. He wants the benefit of being a redeemer without actually being a redeemer. Well, that's no redeemer at all. See, a true redeemer is willing to pay a price to save. A true redeemer, we might think of it like this, is willing to empty himself for those in need of redemption. In other words, a picture of a true redeemer is Jesus. See, if you were to go to Philippians chapter two, you would read where Paul tells us that Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself and he, he took the form of a servant becoming like us so that he could die for us. That, that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right, a, a, a criminal's beam, a, a criminal's execution and torture device. See, Jesus didn't hesitate because the price wasn't too great. Now what Hebrews tells us is that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the shame that came with that. See, it was no surprise to our God that this unnamed relative, this unnamed redeemer would not redeem. But here's the truth, that redemption is always planned. See, the gospel is not an accident. God wasn't sitting back watching Adam and Eve fall into sin and wondering, what am I going to do? He wasn't sitting here watching the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz saying, I didn't know about this other redeemer. No, our God writes beautiful stories. Our God writes the stories that he intends to write, right? What that means is that your story is not pointless, Right? Your story is not worthless. That maybe even right now, you feel like God is writing a story that you do not understand. 
You feel like God is writing a story that you can't see how anything good could come from it. I've got to believe that Naomi and Ruth, when they're sitting in Moab, their husbands are dead, famine is hit, they've got to be saying, what in the world is the Lord doing? How could God have, have forgotten us and done this? And yet they forgot that they were the ones who rebelled against him. And yet even in their rebellion, what was the Lord doing? He was working to save. He was working to redeem because redemption is never an accident. All right, there's always a plan to redemption. Next we see this, we see the price of redemption. See, just as redemption is always planned, redemption is never free. But when I think about redeeming, I think about coupons. Maybe you're a couponer, right? Uh, I can remember growing up, my mom would be clipping coupons uh, on Sunday nights when the Sunday newspaper had come in and there was like 400 pages of coupons. And many of these things were things we were never going to use, right? We were never going to buy, but she was cutting the coupon, right? Uh, today, uh, we don't cut coupons, maybe in the app now, right? We can clip coupons and put them in the app or whatever it is. But even a coupon isn't free, right? right? If you redeem a coupon, it requires you to spend some kind of money, unless you're one of those like extreme couponers, right? And you know the voodoo and all the tricks and whatever that may be. But even coupons, they're not free. See, redemption, redeeming is never free. Now, several times throughout the book of Ruth, the narrator, the author, inserts themselves into the story to kind of prep us for what we are about to see, to, to prep us for what is about to happen. This happens in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So ultimately, if you made a deal with someone, the receipt was a sandal, right? You would take your sandal off, you would give it to that person that you were making the deal with, and that was their proof, right? That I have made a deal with this person. I have made a, a deal with that guy. And so we see this in verse eight. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. This unnamed man, he doesn't hesitate to make a deal with Boaz. See, the, the price for him to redeem Naomi and Ruth was far too steep, but it was just right for Boaz. We get the idea that there's no price that Boaz isn't willing to pay for his bride. Does that sound like anyone else? Does that sound like another redeemer? Look at verses nine and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Mahalon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahalon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So in these verses, what Boaz is do is he has the 10 elders sitting around him. He's now taken this man's sandal because he's made a deal and he wants to make this deal explicit. He wants to make this deal loud so that everyone can hear. So that there's no, there's no ambiguity. There's no question about what has happened. Boaz, he, he alerts everyone around him. And he highlights, this is important, he highlights that this deal has been made this day. You see in verse 13 of chapter three, he tells Ruth, I will figure out this problem. I'll bring this to resolution tomorrow. 
In verse 18, Naomi, she tells Ruth not to worry because Boaz is a good man and he will take care of it tomorrow. And so here Boaz is saying, look, I have kept my end of the deal. See, in verse 10, he, Boaz, he's okay with all that the dear, near redeemer wasn't. See, Mahalon's name is gonna carry on. Ruth's late husband, his name is gonna carry on. His inheritance is going to keep going, not because he was good, but because Boaz was righteous, right? We know that Mahalon, that there was nothing righteous about him, that he left Bethlehem to go to Moab because he didn't trust that Yahweh could provide. And yet notice this, that even in his sin and even in his death, Yahweh has provided for him. Right, Yahweh has been good for him. And it's not because he earned it, but it's because Yahweh is good and because Boaz is righteous. Or because Boaz knew what Yahweh required of him. And so, in a very real way, Boaz has been faithful where Mahalon wasn't. In the same way, Jesus has been faithful where we have not. Right, see, Boaz is a picture of Jesus. We've said this over and over and over again, that Boaz is a picture of the real redeemer, the true redeemer. Look at verse 11 with me. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Here in verse 11 and 12, the people of the community, they're beginning to realize what Boaz has done. That he has been good to Ruth and Naomi even when they didn't deserve it. And so they offer a blessing. They pray that the Lord would use him the way and would use Ruth in a key way like Rachel and Leah. Now, Rachel and Leah, in the most real sense possible, are the mothers of Israel, right? They birthed the 12 tribes. And so the prayer here is that the Lord would use Ruth to establish Israel in a way that he used the very women who did establish Israel. They, they pray that, that Boaz would continue to live righteously. They, they pray that the Lord would use whatever this offspring, whoever this offspring is, to do something great. Now, understand, this is a weighty ask. It's a weighty ask because they're asking that the Lord would use a Gentile woman to do something great in the history of Israel, right? They're asking that the Lord would use a woman who does not belong in Israel to play a key role in Israel's history, and that's exactly what he does, See, this, this prayer is a real-time picture of God's grace. It's a real-time picture of, God, even though Ruth doesn't deserve it, Lord, we pray that you would bless her and use her. And what we see is that he does. See, it, it would be wrong to move on from this point and, and not at least realize and take note that this is a picture of the Lord's heart for the nations. Including the Gentiles has always been a part of the plan. You know, sometimes I think we, we read the Old Testament and then we read the New Testament and maybe we think, maybe kind of implicitly more than explicitly that, well, the Lord couldn't get the, the Jews, he couldn't get Israel to do what he wanted to do, so he's gonna use the Gentiles. But what we see here is that it was always God's plan to bring in the Gentiles, right? It was always God's plan to save the nation. See, our God is a missionary 
God. He's always been committed to redeeming a people from every language and every tribe and every tongue and every nation. See, this story is as much about the missionary heart of God as it is about Boaz as a picture of Jesus. And here, these two themes meet. Boaz, the redeemer, redeems Ruth, who doesn't belong, changes her status, and makes her one of his people. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Right? He has come to us. He has grabbed us who do not belong. He has changed our status, and he has made us one of his own. See, there's a a plan for redemption and there's a price for redemption. And then finally, we see this, we see the point of redemption. See, every every good story has a point. Every good story has a thesis. It has something it's moving towards. See, the, the, the point of Ruth, the story of Ruth is not about a Moabite woman who finds love. The, the point of Ruth is, is not even about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law who find joy. The point of Ruth's redemption is Jesus. Look at verse 13. We've got the climax of Boaz's and Ruth's relationship. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Ruth gets a new status, notice that. She gets a new status as Boaz's wife and then the Lord provides her with a son. It's the, the Lord who gives her a son. And, and everyone recognizes this significance. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now, the women of the community, they come and they, they give a blessing, which wasn't all that uncommon, but here's what's surprising about this blessing is Ruth has just given birth and Naomi's the one who gets congratulated, right? That Ruth has given birth, but it's the mother-in-law that gets the credit. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't do that, right? Uh, if you give birth, I'm gonna say, hey, way to go, right? And mother-in-law, I'm glad that you now have a grandson or a granddaughter. Right? But these women here, they... They focus their attention not on Ruth, who has just given birth, but on Naomi, the grandmother. In verse 14, they identify the child as a redeemer. That this child is going to save the day. They say that Yahweh has not left Naomi without a redeemer, and this redeemer will be great, not only for her, but notice what they say, for all of Israel. They say that Ruth has been better for you than seven sons could ever be. And this is a surprising statement because in this day, you wanted sons, right? One son was great, but seven sons was better. And these women, they're saying, look, Ruth has been better to you than seven sons could ever be. What we have here is we have Naomi's journey from famine to fullness coming to completion. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. This is a picture. Her arms are full. The Lord has been good to her. And in verse 17, we have these same women from the community doing something surprising again. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. So Ruth doesn't get to name her, name him, right? The women get to name him. The women of the neighborhood. 
A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, this feels like an overstep, right? It, it feels like, I mean, why are these women naming the child? When uh, Anna and I, uh, when she gave birth, not me, right, uh, to, uh, to our firstborn, uh, Nora, we were in the hospital. We'd been in the hospital for a couple days, and uh, there's a knock at the door, and in walked uh, a couple uh, from the church that we were serving at at the time that, that we knew, but we weren't especially close with them. And they walk, and they are there to hold the baby, right? Somehow they found us, uh, and she, uh, she picks up Nora, and she's looking at her, and she looks at her hand and she says, oh, her fingernails are so long. And then she looks at her husband and she says, grab my fingernail clippers out of the purse. Oh, whoa, 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 hey, right? Um, that's an overstep, right? She has overstayed her welcome at that point. Um, uh, Anna's maternal instincts kicked in, right? Uh, my fear <laughs> kicked in. Uh, and we say, hey, we'll take her back, right? Uh, but here, these, these women, right, they, they overstep and they, it feels like an overstep, but they name him Obed. Obed was a name short for Obadiah that meant servant of Yahweh. Now, the, the last phrase of verse 17, the last sentence, this is the point of Ruth's redemption. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, Matthew 1 will, will pick up this genealogy, and he'll say that Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. See, King David isn't part of the story, but in many ways, he's the reason behind the story. The reason that we have the story of Ruth is to show us how the Lord has protected the line of the king. But it's not just the line of the king to David, it's the line of the king to Jesus. Now, verses 18 to 22, this is a, a customary royal genealogy. It was customary of the day that, uh, that they would list out the genealogy of the kings, and there would only be 10 names included. So we know that there are others that should be included in this list, but there's only 10 names included because they would only include the high tops, right? They, they would only include uh, the mountaintops. It, it would be similar if we were to go back and start naming presidents. We might not know every president, and we might not even name every president, but we would talk about certain presidents that have left a mark. It's similar here in this genealogy. See, the point of Ruth's redemption isn't just to preserve a line of King David, but it's to preserve the line of King Jesus, they understand this, that Ruth begins with an unfaithful family fleeing from God, and Ruth ends with a faithful God pursuing that same family and using that family to accomplish his purpose. Here's a, a theme that runs throughout the book of Ruth, and it's, it's this theme of God's kindness, his loving kindness, his covenantal kindness is a way that we could think about it. And this kindness is seen most clearly not in providing Ruth and Naomi food, not in providing Ruth and Naomi a redeemer, not even in providing Ruth and Naomi a child. God's loving kindness is seen most clearly in using Ruth and Naomi to provide them and to provide us Jesus. See, Matthew 1 uses this genealogy to show that, that Naomi and Ruth, they could never see all that God was doing in their story. In the same way, you and I can never see all that God is doing. See, in Ruth and Naomi's story, God wasn't just working to provide a redeemer for them. He was working to provide a redeemer for us. 
He was working in ways that, that they could never see, that they could never understand. See, nothing can stop God's plan to redeem. And what that means, if nothing can stop God's plan to redeem, then your story isn't over. Right? Your story isn't done. Maybe, maybe even right now, maybe you feel like you are, you, you are in this part of life, you're in the Ruth one right? Where you feel like you are wandering in Moab. You feel like you're in the middle of famine. You feel like maybe even that the Lord has dealt bitterly with you. And oftentimes it's because of unmet expectations, isn't it? Uh, I read a story recently about unmet expectations. So that, that oftentimes unmet expectations feel like getting on a plane and flying to Italy. And you've been preparing for years or even months to fly to Italy that you know exactly what to expect. You've spent time learning uh, how to speak Italian. You've spent time learning what you're going to eat and where you're going to stay and what you're going to do. You've spent time contacting people there to make reservations and to make plans that you are going to Italy for the time of your life and you've been looking forward to it and you get on the plane and you fly to Italy and you get off the plane and instead of arriving in Italy, you arrive in Holland. And you get off the plane in Holland and for a while you're, you're wondering, how did I end up in Holland? How did I get here? This isn't Italy. This, this isn't what I was prepared for. This, this isn't what I had planned for. And then after a little while, you begin to look around and you realize Holland is beautiful. You begin to see the windmills and the homes and the countryside and the food and you realize, man, this place is beautiful. See, oftentimes, you and I, we prepare to go to Italy and then we get frustrated when the Lord sends us to Holland. And yet if we were to stop and to look and to see, man, Holland is beautiful, right? Where the Lord has you, where the Lord has us, that is exactly where we need to be. And that while we are there, what we have to remember is that the Lord is not done writing a beautiful story. And so maybe you're wondering right now, well, well how, how can the Lord make beauty out of this? I don't know. But what I do know is that the Lord can. Right, that he makes beauty from ashes. Right, that, that he makes broken things beautiful. That he, if he can raise the dead to life, then he can keep writing your story in a way that one day, maybe it's once you've left Holland, you will look back and say, Holland was beautiful. See, the, the Lord is never done. He, you can't stop his plan to redeem. And so what that means is that he's, he's never done with you. He's never done with your story. He, he, he's never done working in you and on you and through you. And so, so maybe you feel like, and the Lord has abandoned me. Or, or maybe you feel like I have abandoned the Lord. Maybe you can identify with, with Naomi and with Ruth that you have, you've gone to that that far country. You, you've gone to that place that you, you know you shouldn't have been and, and you, have, you feel the results, right? You, you feel that weight that you, you shouldn't have been there. And, and maybe even, even you're here today and 
Maybe you've been in that, that rebellion, that sin, whatever it is, and, and you think, man, there's nothing the Lord could do with me. And I, I'm here, not because I'm expecting the Lord to work or act or move. I, I, I'm here because it's what I'm supposed to do. Or, or, or I'm here because it feels like where I need to be. What you need to know is that the Lord isn't done with you. Right? That if the Lord can provide a redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, he can provide a redeemer for you. And the good news is, is that he has provided a redeemer and that redeemer is Jesus. That, that redeemer is the king. And so because you can't stop plan, God's plan to redeem, what that means is that there's always hope. Right? There's always hope. So no matter what your story is, no matter where your story is right now, if you cannot stop, if nothing can stop God's plan to redeem, then what that means is that even though you might feel like you don't have any hope right now, what you need to know is that place is often where God does his best work. God often does his best work in the grave, not on the mountaintop. Right? And we know that God has done his greatest work in the grave because next week we are going to celebrate not that the tomb is full and that the stone is there, but that the stone is gone and the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then understand this, there's hope for you, right? There's, there's hope for me, there's, there's hope for us. That even as Naomi and her family fleed from Yahweh, Yahweh was faithful and pursued them that even as you have fleed from the Father, fled from the Father, even as you have fled from the Father, He has come after you. And because of that, there's hope. Because of that, there is grace and there's mercy. And so perhaps this morning, what you need to do is you need to bow your life to God for the first time. You need to say, God, I'm, I'm tired of running and I just need Jesus. I, I just want Jesus. I just need this redeemer that makes messy things beautiful. I, I just want this redeemer that makes the unlovely lovable. I just need this redeemer who can give me forgiveness so that I can have peace and joy and satisfaction. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.